Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. The industry has to step up and it has to work out for itself what is a proportionate regime that will enable all these objectives to be met and to help regulators by providing that thinking. I absolutely want to make sure that we do our best to answer our own essay question. Today's guest calls on city executives to play a more proactive role in guiding regulators and policymakers in their efforts to both future-proof and foster competition within the UK's financial services sector. She discusses how she believes the UK's finance sector and its regulators can best navigate the vast programme of regulatory change derived from such efforts to bolster the city post-Brexit. And she outlines the mindset shift required to establish herself as a go-to advisor to governments and lawmakers. And she should know because Rachel Kent is a senior financial services lawyer who became one of the city's most called-upon authorities on financial services reform in the wake of Brexit. She has since been invited to advise on or lead several of the government's post-Brexit reviews of rules governing the UK financial services sector. She now also acts as lead advisor to the government's Treasury Department on financial services matters. As a senior partner in the Global Financial Institutions Group at law firm Hogan Lovells, She advises the largest banks, asset managers, insurers and financial market infrastructure firms on financial regulation. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to Following the Rules. Thank you, Lucy. I'm very happy to be here. Let's start with a brief outline of your role. Who do you typically advise and what's keeping you busy currently? I'm a financial services regulatory lawyer. I advise banks, insurers, asset managers and so on on financial regulation, but also I lead commercial transactions where there's a heavy financial services overlay. So that's my day job. But one of the most pleasing things that has happened to me over the last five years is my work for the government. So that's come for me relatively late in my career, but is hugely exciting, hugely challenging. Since the referendum, there has been significantly more to think about in terms of what 
financial law and regulation might look like going forward. So I've been heavily involved in that. Probably biggest note in terms of the size of the project at the moment, I'm advising the whole of government on the Retained EU Law Act. So what that's doing is looking at all of European derived law and looking at whether that should be revoked, retained, amended. So a huge and obviously really important project from the perspective of making sure our laws across the piece are fit for purpose, tailored to the UK. And I'm currently the chair of the UK Regulation Committee of the International Regulatory Strategy Group, more easily known as the IRSG. So that looks at upcoming changes to law and regulation and feeds in to the appropriate authority about how those changes should be dealt with. I also sit on the FinTech Strategy Group, and that involves us looking at key developments in that sector. We're still happily looking at the potential changes brought about by the Khalifa Review including, for example, at the moment, the Centre for Financial Innovation and Technology, which is just off the ground. So a very broad scope of activity that I am looking at. All of that's keeping me extremely busy. Okay. And you mentioned the Khalifa Review, and that is a UK government-backed review into the fintech sector, which sought to determine how the UK could foster a competitive fintech sector post-Brexit. You also mentioned the Fintech Strategy Group, which is a government-backed group looking at a similar topic. Those are part of a broader programme led by government to determine how the UK rulebook generally could be rethought to ensure that the UK financial services sector is as competitive post-Brexit as it can be. You also recently led a government-mandated review into the UK's investment research rules. And that review was prompted by concerns about the quality and quantity of investment research produced in the UK as compared to other jurisdictions and worries that this could undermine valuations and therefore the attractiveness of the UK as a place to list. For listeners who may not be aware of them, are you able to briefly summarise the recommendations you made on concluding a review? This is part of the government's review about the operation of the UK capital markets as a whole. The perception is that companies have felt that the UK is a less attractive place to list. So there are a lot of minds in a lot of places very focused on looking at what these problems are. Investment research is thought to be a key component in the attractiveness of the UK from a listings and indeed a broader perspective. It's what shines a light on companies, on issuers. So I describe it as being part of a virtuous circle. More investment research leads to better valuations, leads to more investors, leads to more investment, leads to greater liquidity, and that is what attracts businesses. Whether they were created in the UK or overseas, that is what attracts businesses to the UK capital markets. So I think everybody supported the notion that investment research is absolutely key. The evidence we heard is very favourable about the investment research that is produced in the UK and the capabilities and expertise of those who are producing it. But two key areas, one outside of my bailiwick from the perspective of this research, and that's the demand for UK equities. Demand for equities is a key part of what I need in order to make the role of investment research as good as it can be. But the other key problem that is in the bailiwick of our review is funding for research. So the providers of investment research in the UK, which fall into many different categories, we have an immense and very competent industry, different players do different things and play different roles. 
but all of them said that it was very challenging to make investment research economic on a standalone basis. So if all you do is provide investment research, that's extremely challenging. Of course, if you have other businesses to offset some of those costs, it's easier, but still a major challenge. So funding is something that we absolutely look to address. And that's uh, relevant to why we made some of the recommendations. So two of the key recommendations are pointed very much at that funding challenge. The first recommendation I'll mention, it relates to MIFID 2 changes and the so-called unbundling rules. The purpose of those changes were very important and were very positive, and that was to get transparency around what those costs were in the interest of the end investor. But what actually happened is there was a feeling it was too difficult to comply with those rules. And so what tended to happen is that the investment managers, the buy side, took those costs onto their own P&L account instead of passing them on to customers in the way that had happened previously, because the rules around enabling them to do that were too complex. Does that matter, I hear you say? Isn't it a good thing that we withdraw costs from end investors? Given the critical importance of investment research in the ecosystem, that would be okay if the volume and quantity of research being requested remained the same. But the consequence of putting the costs on the buy side P&L was that there was less money in the system available for research. So in a nutshell, the changes we have proposed are to make it easier to bundle those costs. So we've proposed changes to the regulatory regime to allow greater optionality of charging. So no mandating of anything, but to facilitate choices on the part of investment managers and their clients about how the costs of investment research are paid for. The second recommendation, and the one I'm most excited about, also relates to funding. And it's noting that the funding gap was particularly focused around mid and small cap companies. So for that reason, we suggested that a research platform be created The point of which is to intermediate between issuers on the one hand that need that light shone on them together with the providers of research. But critical to that is funding. So we propose to the government various funding mechanisms that sit alongside that. So it could be issuer pays, it could be exchange pays, there could be an element of government subsidy type funding or one we haven't seen that we thought was certainly worth investigating is the concept of a levy by reference to transactions. So that would mean, in effect, passing the cost back on to those end investors, but with the possibility of a stamp duty rebate to alleviate some or all of the impact of that. But when we originally designed it or recommended it, we were focused on it solving the problem, lack of research on small and mid-cap companies. Since we published the research, we have been inundated by people who we didn't know existed beforehand. And these are highly technologically innovative businesses who have already been thinking about some of these challenges and have developed mechanisms to provide investment research platforms. And those guys are already thinking in a way that is very ambitious. 
and would certainly support, if this is where the government wants to go, the making of the research platform into something that doesn't just solve the immediate problem that I just mentioned, but actually goes beyond that into making the UK a global centre of excellence for the provision of research. So lots of bells and whistles that could be added onto that platform that, in effect, could make it the main management tool for the relationship between issuers and end investors. For example, we heard reference from some players to the possibility of including voting facilities within that platform. So huge opportunity there to create something very world-leading and totally new. It would be the first time certainly that the UK or a jurisdiction like the UK has done something like this. So very excited by that. Some more technically focused recommendations I might flag. It was universally thought that retail investment in the capital markets, IPOs in particular, should be encouraged. We've heard also universal alignment over the fact that it's incredibly challenging to get information like investment research to the retail market. Regulation does not make that easy. There's a lot of friction in that. So the representatives of retail investors that we spoke to spoke about the need to democratise the provision of investment research. So we've recommended a wholesale look at the regime for research being available to the retail market. Okay. We've talked about MIFID 2 on bundling and just for anyone that's not aware, MIFID 2 is a vast rule book generated in the EU governing how trading takes place. And it introduced a rule whereby firms had to expressly charge for their investment research because at the time, financial services companies would offer investment research to clients as a free add-on quite often, and it wasn't clear what exactly the cost of that was. And so the MIFID II on bundling rules sought to mandate that firms had to charge for that investment research and thereby make clear what the cost of that was. But obviously, there are lots of unintended consequences, as your review indicated. But that aside, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has since signaled that your recommendations will be implemented in due course. You have also been quoted as saying that you don't see your recommendations as a silver bullet and that your suggestions have to work holistically with other post-Brexit recommendations for reform of the UK's financial rulebook in order to be most effective. Could you elaborate on this? How would you like your recommendations to be taken forward? Yes, I think that what I meant by not a silver bullet is not something that is going to solve all the problems in isolation. So I mentioned that the key part for me is that demand for equities issue. If you look at the proportion of, for example, pension schemes or relevant insurance funds assets that are invested in UK equities, It is now very low. There's been a risk aversion, if you like. That's how it's often described to me, a move out of equities and into fixed income related securities. Changing that dynamic is a key factor. So I don't want people to think we're suggesting that pension schemes and others need to underwrite the UK capital markets. It's absolutely the case that if you look at the US, where there's a much higher proportion of UK equities, there's also much higher growth. So this is about paying a bit more and taking a bit more risk in order to access that growth. And that theme goes through to investment research. So for me, solving the de-equitisation of UK equities is a key other component. But of course, there are colleagues of mine across the industry, Lord Hill and his listing review, Mark Austin and the secondary review, to name but two, that have recommended different changes to different parts of the UK capital markets. 
So that's what I meant when I said that it's not a silver bullet. It's an important part, but of a much bigger change programme that's going on in the UK at the moment. Okay. And some have questioned whether the review and its recommendations have come too late to promote this resurgence of research around the small to mid-cap companies that many argue is needed. As you've mentioned yourself, those small to mid-cap companies arguably lost out on research under Mifid 2's on bundling rules. What would you say to that? I don't buy that at all. I mean, what I do buy is that I understand that the changes that have happened so far were costly and expensive and not thought to be a good use of money, if you like. So I understand where we currently are. And I understand that there's a reluctance to spend more money. Nobody wants to put more money into something that isn't working. That's why it's very important that what we actually do is get the rules right this time and that we seek absolutely deep and proper involvement of the industry in what will work to facilitate this. So if I just take those two recommendations for a moment, it might be that the traditional asset managers or the pre-existing asset managers decide that they've made some changes and they might not want to make more changes. This change is about enabling them not to have to continue to bear what I hope will be increased demand for research. I want there to be a fair allocation of the cost of those research. So uh, it seems to me in the interests of the people who would have to make the changes to make them in the longer term. So I'm hoping that that's the case. But in any event, Lucy, I think that the platform is talking about research that doesn't exist at the moment, research that needs to happen to facilitate the growth of mid and small cap companies, as I said. So I don't see that as being held down by past compliance costs that are now sunk costs, if you like. But to make this work properly, What we have to not do is what we might have traditionally done in the past, me included, is sit back and wait until the appropriate regulators of government produce what they think might work. The industry has to step up and it has to work out for itself what is a proportionate regime that will enable all these objectives to be met and to help regulators by providing that thinking. Of course, regulators may disagree. They have a number of statutory objectives. They have a broader suite of things to take into account. But I absolutely want to make sure that we do our best to answer our own essay question. So that's interesting. So your message to the industry participants listening to this podcast is pull your finger out and advise us how we can help redress this imbalance in research available. And if someone listening has an idea or has a a solution they would like to share, can you advise how they would go about sharing that? They should simply just email me. I'm open to all ideas. And indeed, I should say they do. Historically, our systems have been such that waiting was the, the thing to do. It's what we all did, wait to see what the proposal was. But on these things, they are very much about the systems. They are very much about customer relationships, very much about relationships with the sell side. Regulators deserve some help in that regard. So actually, we must all play our part in designing how it happens. There are some key components of regulation. One, the requirements around optionality or bundling. If we don't get that right, there'll be a new costly regime that still nobody will take advantage of because it will be unworkable. The access for retail investors, that's key. I am not saying let's tear up the rule book. Let's take away all protections to retail investors. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is we need to find a more appropriate balance between access and regulations so that we don't regulate ourselves out of allowing this to happen. And the third area is just coming up with a simple and straightforward for the regulatory regime for the provision of investment research. 
at the moment, it's a square peg in a round hole because we are applying the same investment advisory regime to the provision of investment research mm-hmm. as we apply, for example, to our IFA giving you and me advice on our pensions. Those are two different things and we need a better regime. So across all three of those components, I'm very keen that people do some thinking. I certainly can't complain that people aren't rallying to the cause and doing all that they can to give this focus and the thinking that I'm suggesting. But please, if anybody listening has any thoughts on any of this, I'd be very, very keen to hear about them. Okay. And what deadlines are we working towards here? Well, it's not over till it's over, is it? So on the regulatory piece, I tend to take the view that we haven't until we're hit with the consultation. But these are some quite tricky issues. And so I'm really keen to hear from people as soon as possible. But my message is not if you don't speak to me in a week or a fortnight, the opportunity is lost. As I say, some of these things are tricky. And I would hate that we will be able to circulate the thinking as broadly as possible in order to make sure that we capture all these down the line. So it's not an emergency, but I would say that the next big deadline that's looming in my mind is the autumn statement. Mm -hmm. So decisions around, for example, which funding mechanism for the research platform, I have a hope we might hear more either leading up to that or in that statement. But I'm a big fan of the ability of the financial services sector to innovate and think of new ways of doing things. So please do get in touch if you would like Mm -hmm. to. And as you've referenced throughout this conversation, the UK government has undertaken several reviews into reforming the UK's financial rule book since the country left the European Union. And you've been involved in several of those reviews. Are there any opportunities here that you think that the government has missed? With my chair of the UK Regulatory Committee hat on, I ask both myself and the members of my committee that question on certainly a monthly basis. There are no particular line items that we might consider adding. In the main, the message, Lucy, is actually the opposite. We have a huge programme of change. We've seen huge energy and commitment from government and regulators and industry across the piece to do the thinking about what are the opportunities that we see in front of us and how do we get a regime that best enables us to take advantage of those opportunities. So what we have in the Financial Services and Markets Act, in the Future Regulatory Framework, which is part of the Edinburgh reforms that was added to most recently by the Chancellor in his Mansion House speech, including the investment research review, but as I say, certainly not limited to that. What we have is a huge workload. So if you ask me if the government's missed anything, I'd say nothing material. And we really need to focus on delivering things that are in front of us before we add too much. We should do the thinking about the mid and longer term agenda. But in terms of the shorter to mid term agenda, I think we absolutely have a full diet. There has been much concern since this programme of regulatory change kicked off that there is just too much regulatory change taking place right now or due to take place down the track. And questions have been raised as to whether or not the compliance teams within the financial services firms or the regulators themselves can cope with this volume of change. Do you have any views on that regulatory fatigue point? That's the point I get often. And I do have huge sympathy, certainly at the level of the individuals who are charged with doing this within their organisations, I can absolutely see that it's a challenge. But if I step up a bit and look at it firm by firm or from the perspective of the government or from the perspective of the FCA, these decisions go directly to jobs in the UK. 
they are really important things to do quickly and to get right in the interests of all of us. So yes, it's a huge challenge. Yes, there is regulatory fatigue. But unlike a MIFID 2, for example, that you so eloquently explained earlier, unlike that, I don't see this being a short, sharp shock that we need to grit our teeth and hunker down for six months and it will all be over. You know, we have come out of the European Union and we're now in the process of making sure our entire regulatory regime is fit for future purpose, not today's purpose, future purpose. And there are so many challenges and opportunities in that future. I think we may need to ask ourselves some questions about how we manage this. Do we just pick three of the 10 potential opportunities we could think about? Or do we actually see this change programme as here to stay? We all know that one of the consequences of Brexit is a huge responsibility has been passed back to us from the EU, who were performing these functions before, to the UK legislative and regulatory regime. That is here to stay. This is not a short, sharp shock. And if we are to truly take advantage of these opportunities, what we need to be asking ourselves is, have we all got the resources in place to enable us to do the kind of job we want to do on these things? Do we have enough resources in place to enable us to make sure that these changes happen quickly and most importantly, happen in a way that is conducive to business, that removes friction and increases efficiency to make it as easy as possible for businesses to operate in the UK. What we need to do is to make sure that we are developing the skills and expertise, whether that's accessing them from academia, which is another part of our report, by the way, However we do it, we just need to make sure that we've got the right volume today and tomorrow and that going forward, we are building the skills and expertise to speak to the issues that we need to look at for tomorrow. There has been concern raised around the Financial Conduct Authority's ability to deal with its increased workloads post-Brexit because they have new responsibilities under Brexit. They have their own resourcing issues. Do you have any comment on the FCA's ability to cope with all this change? I have the utmost respect for the FCA. I think they're doing an amazing job in difficult circumstances. And as you say, they have the double whammy, if you like, of the challenges of the need to look at a huge swathe of forthcoming new regulation, coupled with a different lens through which they must look at making that recommendation. And I talk specifically about the secondary competitiveness agenda introduced by the Financial Services and Markets Act. So that is a very challenging position. And just for those that might not be aware, the FCA's secondary competitiveness agenda, that is a requirement that the FCA now has to keep an eye on ensuring that the financial services sector is as competitive as possible. It is a secondary objective, so it's not something they need to prioritise, but it's something they need to have an eye on as they do their job. Yes, and I make no comment on whether they are appropriately resourced for that. And I will say, for my part, people like me are not helping them. When I produce a review like the review I've just done, that there are at least three extremely challenging areas of focus that I am suggesting needs to be looked at. So I'm very aware that I haven't helped them with their capacity issue, but these issues are important and urgent. So I would encourage them to do more of what they're already doing, which is seek early informal views from the industry, get help from the people who are on the ground and who have the skills and expertise. So that's not a criticism. They are very open to ideas. But that seems to me to be a very efficient way 
it, it transferred some of the heavy lifting to come up with what are the really difficult questions and what are some professional answers. I just hope that if the industry has time to do more and the will to do more of that, that can only help some of these issues. It's a team effort, yeah. if you like. Which actually, interesting enough, when Emily Shepard, the COO of the FCA, appeared on this podcast, she said that her door was open and if anyone listening had any ideas as to how they could help the FCA navigate the future, they were all ears, essentially. That's been my overwhelming experience. They have reached out on a number of questions to seek thinking, helpful thought leadership in terms of how they move forward. So we're approaching a general election year in 2024. What opportunities do you think there are for the political parties here in terms of fostering a competitive financial services sector in the UK? This is very difficult. Look, you asked me a moment ago what more the government could be doing, and I answered that question by saying they're doing quite enough, and indeed some people feel overburdened. So I don't think we're going to see huge change in that sense from my conversations with the people in the Labour Party who are most closely looking at financial regulation. My perception is that there is no current proposal for huge change to the agenda that we currently have. So we will no doubt all be disrupted by elections. But in terms of the actual core policy components, I suspect we will not see a material change to that irrespective of which shade of government we end up with after the election. Okay, because Labour is widely predicted to win the next general election. How would you like a Labour government to approach financial services reforms? And are there any reforms you would specifically like a Labour government to avoid? I don't think so. We've got enough on our plate. So whilst we need to keep the pressure on for the medium term, right now we've got enough on our plate. If there are two things I would pick out as being dynamics in the current debate, it's one, the competitiveness agenda. So as we spoke about, the FCA now has a secondary competitiveness agenda. That's going to be a challenge. It requires a change in the way we all think about things. And that is important. And everybody needs to work seeing how we can make the most of that and support that concept in in the interests of businesses in the UK. So that's one side of the dynamic. The other side of the dynamic is measures around consumer protection, particularly the consumer duty. That has been a huge challenge for firms. The challenge for all of us is how those two dynamics, competitiveness, consumer duty, how are we going to make those two things work together in a way that really supports business in the UK. So I I don't see this as a change of government issue, but that is the forward-looking dynamic. Okay. The consumer duty is a huge new set of rules that came into effect in July, and it requires companies to prioritise the needs of their clients in a way that they haven't been expressly required to do before. So it's a real mindset shift for a vast number of companies. Your career to date includes several stints advising on various government-led post Brexit reviews into financial services reforms. What advice would you have to those wishing to follow in your footsteps? To ask themselves whether they really do want to do that. I would describe myself as an extremely, perhaps excessively focused individual. What I didn't used to do for the referendum is look up much and sit back, reflect. Philosophically, what are we all trying to achieve here? So I just got on with what was in front of me, if you like. Because pretty soon after the referendum, I was asked to look at a particular, you're going to laugh when I mention this, but do you remember the days when we thought equivalence might be the way forward? Mm. And my first report was into whether the EU's existing equivalent regime might be useful for that. So 
Prior to that, somebody might have said to me, Rachel, please analyse the equivalent regime and tell me the pros and cons of how it might affect me. This was a different mindset. It was, does it work? Now, if the answer is no, nobody would have thought terribly highly of me if I just said, no, it doesn't work. You have to say it doesn't work for these reasons. And here are things that can be done to change it. So it's a very different mindset, a policymaking mindset, if you like. So that, in a nutshell, was the light bulb moment for me. I found that I very much enjoyed not just advising on the static law, but doing my bit alongside the amazing policy professionals we've got. Now, that requires a mindset change. It requires us to leave our offices, to leave our desks, to go and join groups like the City UK. It's a matter of getting out, joining those groups, speaking to people and looking at the truly amazing work our policy professionals are already doing. We have such a big challenge in front of us and diversity of thought is key. So if we can bring a broader range of people and thinking as possible into those initiatives, we will have a better job. So I would encourage everybody to get out and get involved. It wasn't my specific objective to be involved in the Khalifa report, nor indeed to be asked to lead my own specific government review. That thought had not entered into my mind. But now I look back on it, I had done all the groundwork by becoming involved in those initiatives for how do we make things better going forward. Mm-hmm. You mentioned equivalence, which is a construct within EU law, which enables non-EU firms to access the EU market if their rules are deemed to be equivalent to those in operation in the EU. So your advice to those wishing to follow your footsteps is it is if the government does ask you a question, don't just think about answering that question. Think about how you can advise beyond that. I certainly wouldn't wait for them to ask a question because like all of us, we can only ask questions from the knowledge that's in our own head. Government, nor regulators, nor lawyers necessarily, are in all of the best places to ask those questions. So if you're aware that there are frictions in your business caused by, let's say, regulation, don't wait until that item appears on the agenda. Stand up, shout about that item, get involved with the City UK or UK Finance, whichever the appropriate group is, will be able to help you air those issues and develop solutions. So I would describe the main message as get out more and get involved in the many groups that are already looking at all of these issues and would be, I'm sure, delighted to welcome you. Okay. Generally and lastly, what's one challenge you think not enough people are paying attention to? My golden thread throughout this, Lucy, as you will have spotted, is I don't think we need any more right now. So the thing we should be looking at is the one I've already mentioned. It's how do we design our organisations? How do we build our resource base? to make sure that we've got the volume and the capability and experience to not just meet the challenges that are staring us in the face right now, but continue to identify what the future opportunities are and to enable us to develop policy positions to meet those opportunities. So for me, it's all about building capacity. Okay, and keeping the door open across the industry to ensure that the industry works together to to come up with solutions in that context. Absolutely. We have many, many opportunities coming up. And what we need to do is build the capability to ensure that we have the best possible chance of capitalising on those opportunities. Okay. Well, I feel like we could talk about this for hours, Rachel, but sadly we've run out of time. So (laughs) thank you for taking the time to speak today. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.